I'm Mark Carroll, and welcome to episode 82 of Carol Pop. Our guest this week qualifies as musical royalty in New Orleans and beyond, Ivan Neville. This multi-instrumentalist and singer-songwriter just released his first solo album in 19 years, Touch My Soul. The lead track, Hey All Together, features a who's who of people important in his life. His father, Aaron Neville, sings on it, as does Bonnie Raitt, in whose band Ivan played in the mid-1980s. Also featured, Michael McDonald, Trombone Shorty, and David Shaw. You don't like me that much, cause I don't look like you. The new song, Greatest Place on Earth, is Ivan Neville's love letter to New Orleans, and the feeling is mutual. Ivan Neville is one of New Orleans' top musicians on his own and in his jammy funk band, Dumpsta Funk. When we spoke, Dumpsta Funk had just played at a New Orleans Pelicans NBA game. Ivan Neville was born in New Orleans, and his family is pretty well known there. His father, the silky-voiced Aaron Neville, had a number two hit, Tell It Like It Is, in 1966, when Ivan was seven years old. Ivan remembers that and tells us how much, if at all, his family's lifestyle changed then. Aaron's older brother, Art Neville, a keyboardist and singer-songwriter, founded the quintessential New Orleans funk band, The Meters. Another brother, percussionist Cyril Neville, joined The Meters as well, and in 1978, Art, Cyril, Aaron, and Charles Neville formed The Neville Brothers. Ivan Neville tells a great origin story about that band, which has its roots in a Mardi Gras Indian tribe. Like his uncle Art, Ivan Neville became a keyboardist and was in demand for his playing, including as a Neville Brothers member in the band's later years. Not only did Ivan tour with Bonnie Raitt and co-write a song on one of her albums, but he also played bass and sang backing vocals on the 1986 Rolling Stones album, Dirty Work. How did that happen? Where was Bill Wyman? Were that album's sessions as contentious as they were reputed to be? Keith Richards then enlisted Ivan to join his side band, The Expensive Winos. Ivan Neville played keyboards and sang on Richards' first two solo albums, Talk Is Cheap and Main Offender. That's Ivan Neville's clavichord snaking through the song, Wicked As It Seems. Neville was back in the Stones' fold to play and sing on their 1994 album, Voodoo Lounge, but that was a difficult time for him. He explains why. Ivan Neville launched a solo career with the 1988 album, If My Ancestors Could See Me Now. It contains the top 30 single, Not Just Another Girl, and its second single was a duet with Bonnie Raitt, Falling Out of Love. Falling out of love. His albums Thanks, Saturday Morning Music, and Scrape Follow, the last of those in 2004. In 2007, Neville released his first record with Dumpsta Funk, the EP Listen Here. There have been three more Dumpsta Funk albums since then, most recently Where Do We Go From Here in 2021. Why did Neville decide to go solo again with his first album in 19 years? What major changes has he undergone during that time? He's been through a lot, as you'll hear. Also, what's it like to be a Neville in New Orleans? Does he feel like the flag bearer for the city's music? And is he an optimist or a pessimist? Ivan Neville certainly has a lot of talent and spirit. Please enjoy this candid, very lively Carol Pop conversation with Ivan Neville. We've come a long way Still a ways to go are you an optimist? Yes, I am. <laughs> I am. Yeah. You know, um, uh, I kind of try to look at the, the, the brighter side of things. I try to, obviously there's always a realistic side to, you know, I mean, life as it is in this day and age, there's some crazy shit going on. And, right. You know, people have kind of, I don't know, we've gone in different directions uh, for different reasons or whatever, but, um, and, and every time I look, some more shit's going on. That just kind of makes me pretty much say, Oh my God, what, what are we doing? So, you know, but I still try to I look at my nine-year-old son and I kind of got to, I got to be optimistic. I have to, I have to believe and hope that they're, um, the future is going to be uh, bright for him and he's going to have an opportunity to do what he wants to do in his life. So I have to, I have to be like that right now. Yeah. This idea that we're <laughs> handing our kids this crappy world that's getting worse is like, you know, that, you know, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's, that, that thought and that, 
possibility is there, you know, and, and it's in, and it's real, but, um, I guess, you know, I guess it's some of the messaging and some of the songs, you know, I've kind of come to a place where I, I feel like, uh, you know, maybe out of necessity and maybe it's self-preservation of some kind, but I, I just feel like I'm in a, um, like when I wake up, like when I wake up in the morning and, and perhaps, uh, 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 the night before I maybe didn't sleep that great. <laughs> but right. then I wake up and I wake up kind of negative, you know, with a, with a negative outlook immediately. Um, I turn to the things, the, the, the task at hand, when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I have to do, uh, most of the time when I'm at home is to make breakfast for my son. Mm. So that idea I take that and put it in a general way. Like, um, you know, just being, when I'm thinking of someone other than myself, it puts me in a better mood. It makes my outlook, uh, everything uh, seems a little bit more promising. And I see, I feel more comfortable. I feel more at peace. So to me, that goes a long way. And um, just so happens some of the songs that, that, I, that I was writing over the last few years that um or a piece of this this collection of music called touch my soul that collection of music embodies some some of that messaging right and and it's basically i'm figuring that the more i try to figure out what can i do to be of help the better i'll feel and the better that the people closely closely associated with me might might have a better chance as well so I could I could focus on the negative and and be like uh, you know impending doom and we <laughs> we we see the world around us just fucking caving in you know but right now in the immediate uh, in the present time in the moment what can I do right now to be of help and the right. first thing I got to do like I say in the morning I had to make my son some breakfast and that's a start yeah I mean these have been challenging past few years for uh, optimists and uh you know i can hear you wrestling with it in you know these songs i mean the first song on there hey all together is like a call like everything's so divisive and we have to like go through this together which i think is what most people actually want but you're wrestling with what's going on in the time right now yeah. because it's been yeah. so i mean between the pandemic and all the cultural crap it's it's been really and and whatever else if you look at the environment or i mean it's been tough as you know so struggle. so so that's what you're so it seems like that's what you're engaging with yeah absolutely i mean no, and, and i say that with a smile on my face and this is um and this is genuine you know and uh i went to i went to a basketball game last night well, my band played at the halftime of the basketball game, which is more. Well, let me tell you, that's not the most fun thing to do because halftime at wow. basketball game is nobody's really cares about it that much. And our band played. My my band dumps the funk. Oh, cool. We're in New Orleans. We're in New Orleans. You know, cats. You know, the funk band of New Orleans, and we played the halftime. So my I brought my son to the game, and we had a blast. I mean, I there's a couple of pictures of he and I just sitting, and that's. It, I'm not I'm not worrying about the result of the game or how the gig went. But when I look at that picture of he and I, and I posted it, and 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 uh, it's that's that's what it's all about. That 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 moment. I mean, it was a tough ending for the Pelicans, but yeah, it, was, uh, <laughs> it didn't turn out the way we wanted it to turn out. But I got I this watched, picture right here. This picture right here. And that's me and Isaiah oh, sitting nice. before the game. That, see that right there. That's the thing. That is right. what, that's what gives me optimism. And that's what makes me feel to stay in that lane, like, you know, and to remain an optimist. Cause I, I gotta, I gotta believe that, you know, he's going to help make the world better. Well, and also, you know, Pelicans fans who were disappointed <laughs> in the in the result, they could go out and they could still hear Dumpster Funk and uh, all these other great New Orleans bands playing. And no offense to Oklahoma City, but you know, they're, they're not getting to go listen to. You know, I'd rather have New Orleans music and you know, yeah. team not not make it. Well, right now, well, no, we have a, right now we have one of the many um, uh, musical uh, 
uh, gatherings that we have in the city. Like we, you know, we are the home of the the greatest party um, in the world. It's called New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. Right. Of but course. there are other there are other little other festivals that, like right now, is the first uh, day of French Quarter Fest, which is another gathering. And um, I'm playing a show tonight, um, like uh, some kind of in, uh, um, impromptu thing over at um. Over by the river, by the new Four Seasons Hotel, which is going to be a fun time. So the people get to go out and hear music and eat some good food. Whereas, you know, the other team gets to go home and wait to play their game, but they go to where they live. They don't live in New Orleans. I'm just going to say that. Right. And and as, <laughs> and as I alluded, but listeners might not know, I mean, the second song on your album is called The Greatest Place on Earth. And it's about New Orleans. And you're like the food, the music, you know, pretty, pretty good place. So, yeah, yeah. Now, do you consider and I was looking at I was going to ask you this anyway, but then I was reading sort of the press material on like the new album and the single, which I think I think the singles officially just released Hey All Together. Um, and it refers to you as a standard bearer for the musical culture of New Orleans. Do you see yourself that way, that you're kind of carrying the torch for the city's music? I, you know, um, <laughs> I didn't write that. <laughs> so no, but I, you know, I feel like I have a responsibility to you know, to to a great degree, to to keep to keep going and doing what I do as long as I can do it. And we have young, we have younger um, ambassadors who are really do, making some serious noise. Like Trombone Shorty is making some serious noise out there. Oh, he's, sure. He's he Troy's the, he's the heir apparent, you know, because he I watched him um, from a, a young age. Uh, grow into this cool, this great artist, a great man, a great young man, I might say. And um, he's uh, out there sharing it uh, with the world and he's, 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 he's doing great things. So, and, and I have a, I have a younger, I have a cousin who's um, getting, getting his feet wet big time right now. It's my uncle Cyril's son, Omari Neville. And there's, you know, there's other bands that are around that are uh, doing the thing galactic and, um, and you know we got, uh, but being from one of the musical families in New Orleans, and being having the last name Neville, and being Aaron's son, and uh, nephew to the Neville brothers, and having come up—that was my school. Was playing with with my dad, and my uncles, and stuff like that. So yeah, you know what? I, I feel definitely fortunate about the opportunity to do it, but definitely I feel the responsibility to keep, uh, you know, sharing this uh, this good these good vibes that we have here with the world is, is being a Neville in new Orleans, like being in the Royal family in England, except that people actually like and respect you. <laughs> I wouldn't go as to say that, but it's pretty cool. Well, yeah, well you have better, cool, you, know? you put out better records than the Royal family. So that's what oh, I'm saying. Yeah. You know? yeah, it's like, yeah. Yeah. Now we, <laughs> yeah, no, no, nothing. Um, no, no pun on, on them, but you know, uh, yeah, it's cool. It's cool being be, being being Ivan Neville here and living in New Orleans and and being around and you know it's 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 pretty it's pretty um I feel feel pretty fortunate you know what when you were growing up like what was the first time that you I don't know like you started playing keyboards for instance and started trying to pick up you know being musical yourself I started playing the uh, piano when I was like fifteen years old. Now I had I had picked up a guitar when I was maybe ten, and when I was ten, I I learned a few songs. Let me see. At that time, I learned a couple of Jackson Five tunes, a couple of bass lines. I learned that. Great. And I learned I learned Simple Song by Sly and the Family Stone. I learned some line and I learned chicken strut by the meters. I learned some lines like that. And then I put the guitar down. I believe it would happen. Actually, I kind of lost interest in it and I, I didn't have the patience. I wanted to be outside playing football and stuff like that. And my uncle Cyril, I don't, <laughs> don't want to throw him under the bus, but I loaned the guitar to, to one of my uncles. It was, it was Cyril. I never saw the guitar again. <laughs> I don't know what he did with it. I don't know what I, maybe he loaned it to somebody else. I never saw it again. And it didn't really bother me because I was kind of 
you know, I was bored with it and I didn't have the patience, the discipline to sit and learn it. So I didn't play and then I didn't do anything musical until I was 15 and I started playing piano. Was that an electric or acoustic guitar? It was an electric guitar. It was one of those five and dime store guitars, Japanese model or something with a little uh, cheap amplifier. Yeah, it was an electric guitar. I mean, when you were growing up, were you just surrounded? I mean, this is like the way people would imagine it, that you're just like surrounded by music all the time. And was it just sort of like a, just sort of a given? Everyone in your family was like musically talented and playing these great songs all the time? Yeah, you know, um, it was it was around. It was around like I knew that my uncle, my uncles and my dad, I knew that they were all musicians and they sang and whatnot. And that, that was what, from what I from what I saw was their job. Like my dad had other side jobs and side hustles because he didn't make a lot of money playing music early on. But I knew that the, these guys were musicians and there was a lot, a lot of music just around because of the people that would show up every so often at your house. or you would see them uh, uh, on the block, like the a guy by the name of James Booker was a family friend. And he was his, he was the most amazing piano player I'd ever heard in my life to this day. And he, he would show up at the house every so often. And, and then whenever he'd show up, my mom would maybe be cooking or maybe she'd offer him some food or something and say, play, sit down and play the piano, uh, Booker, come on. And he played this um, amazing uh, renditions of, of some songs and whatnot and things like that. And then, you know, there were other characters that I had uh, encountered, like Dr. John. I'd seen him and I'm like, who's that cat? You know, I was Dr. John, Matt rubbing that. You know, he was just hips, this real hip. And he was, he, uh, from my point of view, I'm looking at him, what's he? He kind of was a little different. He was a white cat, but he seemed to be respected by all of the brothers and all of the, uh, my dad's peers and everybody. And he was a cat. I later found out that he was a cat that was, you know, an important musical um, uh, part of all, all, all that they were doing. And so it was just, it was, it was very um, interesting to that, uh, that aspect of it. But otherwise I would walk outside my door and go outside and play football or play in the street or play whatever we were playing and whatever games we were playing out. Um, you know, whether it was be a, being a, a Cub Scout, Boy Scout kind of, yeah, we, we, I was a Cub Scout when I was like nine years old doing that kind of stuff, running the streets, running, going, swimming, you know, regular, regular stuff. And I was trying to just do that with all my friends. And the music was kind of like a given. And especially the addition of all of these people that were around every now, every so often. And then I would see my dad get maybe dressed up some, some, to some degree. And I'm like, okay, he's going to sing somewhere. And my uncle would be in his station wagon with some amplifiers and stuff. And it was at one point, there was a drum kit in our living room. And I believe it was, it was a drum kit that Zigaboo, the drummer from the meters, Joseph Modelist, I think he maybe had a drum kit that he had set up in our living room. For what reason? I don't know. But it was stuff like that. And it all just seemed normal to me. It all just mm. seemed normal. Part of the thing. And I just felt like, okay, it's cool. I'm, you know, I'm just a kid in the neighborhood, but I just happened to my family's all, they all into music. Yeah. By my calculation, when you were seven, your dad had a number two hit, uh, 1966, Tell It Like It Is. Do you remember that becoming a hit and did that change things yes. in your family? I remember when that becoming a hit, all, all that really changed was because he didn't make, he didn't, he, he didn't get any financial success from that song. That song made it to maybe, maybe number two or something on the, yeah. On the charts. It was a big hit. Um, big seller. I remember us listening to the record. I remember listening to the radio and they were playing the record when it was first coming out. And I remember the uh, the local DJ played it. He played it three times in a row. Wow. So I'm going to play this one again. He played it again. He played it. And we were all like laughing and like, oh, my God, he's playing this song. He played the song like two or three times in a row. And that was a big deal. I'm like, oh man, this this might be, I guess we, you know, my dad's got, you know, a hit record. And it was all over the airwaves. And he did, he was able to go out and tour and he did some touring with with like I guess what Otis Redding and people like that headlining and 
I saw some of the posters and I know he, I know he did some traveling and he was gone a lot. Now I did notice it was a little bit more lax around the crib because he was gone. So I, 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 I noticed that a little bit more <laughs> during that time. Oh, dad's gone. Oh, cool. <laughs> but yeah, I knew that I knew what he was doing. He was out there playing music and whatnot, and, but he didn't make a, a ton of money. So when he would come back, when that thing kind of uh, quieted down, when the teller like it is thing quieted down, he was just a struggling cat trying to play a little music. And he had jobs. He had side jobs. He worked on the riverfront do- doing all kinds of stuff, man. And he didn't make a, a ton of money. We didn't move. We stayed in our same house that we were living in, a shotgun double house on Valentine Street. Um. And that we stayed there. We we stayed. We lived there until until I was um like eighteen, nineteen years old. We we were there. And I left. I left and moved out. Whatever. And they were in that house for uh, until the Neville brothers started gaining some success and started making some real money. But during mm-hmm. that that phase on six, 69, nothing drastically changed except. We knew that he was known more and people knew who he was, but he was he didn't see any, you know, what people would think uh, that you would see from something like that. Now, our lives didn't change at all, except, like I said, he was traveling a little bit more, which I didn't mind. <laughs> There's so many stories about people having hit records and not getting whatever the money you would have th- thought they would have gotten out of it. Yeah. So I don't know if that was like the industry at that point or like, you know, or now for that matter, but a lot of, a not- lot of cats were going through that kind of thing. If they didn't have, you know, the proper management and the proper business uh, advice uh, and uh, business practices and whatnot, a lot of, a lot of people were, would, would, would experience that. Now there were others that were making money. Now I did see some people around that were as closely associated. And I'm like, that guy's got some money. <laughs> when I first saw Alan Toussaint and Alan Toussaint was a songwriter and he had already right. written a gazillion songs up to that point. He was, he had already made probably a lot of money writing songs. And he, I saw him one, the first time I saw him, me and my, I was with my dad and we were going to what I, what I guess was the office was the, uh, the business office for, for Alan Toussaint and I guess uh, his other partner, who the guy was Marshall Seahorn, or they had like a, a, a production company and a recording studio and stuff. But anyway, I saw this guy pull up on a motorcycle with a nice sweater and he had on some boots. And I'm like, this looked like some expensive stuff he had. He was wearing and the motorcycle looked pretty nice. I'm like, Dad, who's that guy? Who's that guy? <laughs> he said, it's, Al- it's Alan Toussaint. And Alan said he had done very well, you know, and my dad, you know, he had some, my dad had some, uh, some, some, some deals that weren't in his favor on some of those things, and especially that record, Tell It Like It Is. From what I understand, when he recorded that song, nobody thought it would do anything. And as a matter of fact, I think the, the initial, the record label that was supposed to put it out went bankrupt or filed bankruptcy. And so then, but then there was demand for the record. People, the record some kind of way got bootlegged and it got played on radio stations and people couldn't find it, the record. So, I, so that's just some some uh, some outside info that I've heard about. You know, I don't know the right. ex- exact story behind it, but it was, you know, our lives didn't change. That's long story short. <laughs> Tell it like it is, it was a big hit and you'd hear it all over the, all over the place. And we still lived in the same little house and we stayed there for quite a while. Well, and then when the meters were coming up, would you guys just go like, all right, let's go see the, let's go see the uncles and the meters. Like they're just like the family band. Well, no, they, they were, they were, um, they were seemingly uh, like working, like a working group that were, they were working a lot. Like that, I knew that about them of the meters were all, they always had a gig somewhere. And at some point they had a regular gig down in the French quarter at a, at a club called, I remember this because the club was named the Ivanhoe. And I remember, Oh yeah, the Ivanhoe club. My, my name's Ivan, you know, Ivanhoe club, whatever. And that was a, a, a club in the, on Bourbon street. And they had a regular gig there. And whilst they were playing there, I think that's where Alan Toussaint picked them up and, and, and got them to start recording stuff. 
they started backing up a bunch of artists and we would hear them on, we knew that they were playing on records and they were on some uh, Lee Dorsey records and some other recordings. And then they were making their own records as well. And they had some songs that were pretty popular. Sissy Strut was a, a pretty decent, uh, uh, was played, uh, played a, a bit on the radio and, you know, they, they seem to be doing well. And, uh, my uncle seemed to be doing a, a little bit better than I thought we were doing financially. Cause I, I know he had, he built his own house down the block or he bought, he bought this house and he fixed it up. That was really nice. And we were kind of living in a family, a family owned home that was uh, handed down from my great aunts and stuff like that. So it was, it was levels, different levels of success within the family you know, at different times. And it was very interesting. It was very interesting. And the meters were, they were working really hard. And then eventually the, the, my, my uncle Art and my, my uncle Cyril and my dad and my, and, and my uncle Charles, they got together to form the Neville Brothers. Right. And they did a record, the Four Brothers and the Meters. So well, Art was still a member of the Meters at the time. And I think this was maybe in 1976, perhaps, somewhere around there. And they did a record called the wild shop of And it was for, it's one of the most amazing new Orleans records uh, ever made, I think. And it was my great uncle, George Landry, who's mostly known as a uh, big chief Jolly, big chief Jolly of the wild shop of Mardi Gras Indian tribe, the Mardi Gras Indians. That's a, that's a, an important part of new Orleans culture and uh, African-American um, men and women, would, would sew up, uh, they would uh, create these amazing, elaborate Indian costumes with plume feathers and stuff like that. And they would go out and mask on Mardi Gras Day. And it was basically because Mardi Gras was mostly, especially back in, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to, I don't want to get all political and, and stuff like that, but to some degree, it's, it's you know, it, it was it was mostly a white, celebration, the Mardi Gras parades and stuff like that. And the way black people participated was they dressed up as Indians and Mardi Gras Indians was, that's how that came about. Um, there's a little bit deeper history than that, where I, I heard there was some, some mingling of, of native Americans and slaves that kind of, um, rallied together at a place called Congo square in new Orleans back in the days and they got together and that's, that's where um, the African-American um, folks got, uh, got influenced by this native American culture. And right. hence the, the Mardi Gras Indians was a thing. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a ritual. It's a, it's an amazing part of, of new Orleans culture. Anyway, my, 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 my great uncle, George Landry was chief of the wild Chapatula's Mardi Gras Indian tribe. And that's a street thing. They would come out on Mardi Gras day and also another time of year, I think St. Joseph's night and something they call super Sunday. They would mask up in these Indian, in these amazing uh, regalia, uh, like feathers, plumes and stuff like that. So they wanted to, they, there was a band called the wild Magnolia who had, uh, I think it was Quint Davis. One of the founder, founder, one of the founders of jazz festival he uh, was responsible, he and some other folks, with putting this music on record. And there was this uh, recordings of it, and it was uh, a, another tribe called the Wild Magnolias, and there was a guy named Bo Dallas. They had done some records, the Wild Magnolias. They were the first ones that I know of that had recorded that music. And it's amazing stuff. And they used, they used the musicians, a guy by the name of Willie T, who's a very unsung New Orleans musician, amazing piano player. He was, uh, I think, the band leader, and they made some records. They made a few records. Uh, there was one called Honda Wanda. Uh, there was one called New Suit that people might be, might have been familiar with. It was a song that was kind of charted pretty heavy on soul radio back in the days called Smoke My Peace Pipe. Smoke My Peace Pipe, smoke <laughs> it right. That was the Wild Magnolias. Okay, so now I'm going to get to what happened with my dad, my uncles, and the meters, and my great uncle, George Landry, Big Chief Jolly. They decided to make a record called the Wild Chapatulas. It's another Indian tribe, but they were going to make a record. 
and put it on uh, on the studio recording. And when I saw this group of guys get together, the Meters and the Four Neville Brothers together playing, I my thoughts were that should be why isn't that a band? Right, that should be the band. That would have been the band, but it was not meant to be. So they made this great record called The Wild Chopper Tools, which I think is the first unofficial Neville Brothers record. And it was amazing. And soon after that, the Meters, my uncle Art and Cyril left the Meters, and then uh, they formed the Neville Brothers, along with my dad and my uncle Charles. And that was uh, amazing stuff, because Uncle Art, my uncle Art, he was responsible for for starting two of the most influential New Orleans bands ever. Absolutely. The Meters and the Neville Brothers, which is amazing to me. So just, I, I was I was probably, when they were doing the Wild Chopper Tula stuff and I saw the brothers about to start kicking their thing off, I saw it happening in real time. You know, I'm like, them dudes are going to, them dudes are going to stay together. They're going to do something. Nice. And... They ended up doing the Neville Brothers and they were they they did amazing stuff with that group. And I got my start. I started a band around 1976, 77. And then I soon joined with my dad and my uncles in 70, late 78, early 79. I started playing with the Neville Brothers. And that was my start. You were playing with them early. I didn't realize it was that early that you started playing with them. Yeah, yeah. Late, late 1978, 1979. Well, and you played keyboards, which is what Art played. Did you? Were you looking yeah. up to Art? Did he mentor you in all of this? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I looked up to Art, and um, it, being in that group was amazing because they had it was so rhythmic and there's so much percussion. Like you had the drums going on, and and the beats were very rhythmic. And then you had my uncle Cyril playing conga drums and cowbells. My dad always had a cowbell in his, or a tambourine in his hand. Charles was always playing some little odd percussion instrument when he wasn't playing his, his saxophone. So the, 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 the music was rhythmic. So it was very challenging to play. And then at the time, there were three keyboard players in that band. It was my uncle Art. It was a guy named Gerald Tillman and myself. So you had to learn early on how to, not, how to play, how to not play. <laughs> Let me say that. How to stay out of the way how to right. play and not be all how to play and play minimal, that kind of thing. So that, that, that stuff was a, was an absolute blast, man. When you started playing piano, were you thinking, Oh, I'm going to do like, no, keep doing New Orleans music. Or did you go through a phase where you're like, no, nah, I'm into this other kind of music. That's their music, but I'm going to do something else at least for a bit. He- you know, from actually from kind of from day one, I started making up my own little songs and they were not in the tradition of, you know, uh, of typical New Orleans style stuff. I was influenced by the music that I was hearing on the radio, stuff that I had heard before and stuff that I was listening to at that time. And I was um, I was all over the place. I was influenced by a lot of stuff. I mean, when I was a, when I was like, six, six, seven years old. I love the Beatles. I like the Beatles, like the Rolling Stones, all that stuff. And then later on, the, the radio, uh, the music that was coming out of the speakers and radios, man, back in the, in the, in the early 70s was amazing. You had so much cool stuff. You had Sly and the Family Stone. You had the James Brown stuff. You had, um, you, had you know, like Elton John doing cool stuff. A lot of good music came came out of, of that that era, so I was like influenced by all that stuff. Right. Well, and you and back then you'd hear Stevie Wonder, and then you'd hear Aerosmith, and then you'd hear LaBelle. You know, it was just like on the same all exactly. Over the place. Yeah. Yeah. You'd hear you'd hear Rufus and Chaka Khan come on with "Tell Me Something Good," and the next song would be "Benny and the Jets" by Old John. Right. Yeah, and oh, then Billy oh, Don't Be a Hero yeah. or something like that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and that was cool. So I was kind of a, a mixed bag, you know, back in in those days. And I wasn't like, you know, a typical uh, uh, in in my in my mind and, and in my uh, aspirations. I wasn't like I'm going to be this New Orleans cat. I was kind of going somewhere else. And with my songwriting, I went kind of somewhere else a little bit. You know? Do you remember the first song you wrote? 
I do. <laughs> I'd say some crap. Let's hear it now. No, it was a song. It was like some song. It was like, I remember when I was out in the cold. But now that I'm together and the past is old. That's the first That's the first thing. That's not bad. The first, first line, song, I remember when I was out in the cold. And now that I'm together, the past is old. I'm thinking about the future. Something like that. I, that was the first thing I ever wrote. <laughs> I don't know that it had a good hook or a good chorus, but that was the first thing I ever made up as my own little chord progression and some words. Do you write it on guitar or piano? On piano. On piano. And by the way, later on, there were songs that I did start on guitar. There was a few. So I I would vary that. But most of the time, I would start on piano. Do you mostly still now write on piano? Mostly, yes. Like, I have a room... I'm looking at this room right now. It's called the sun room in my house. It's got a bunch of pictures all over the wall of family and, and stuff. And, and, and there's a little, a, a little Yamaha piano back there. And I sit in there and make up stuff and kind of practice in there a little bit. And I, I, I sit in there and, and make up pieces. And that's how I made this, that record, um, touch my soul. I made up pieces. I recorded them on my phone. I recorded it on voice memo couple little pieces and then I'd go to the studio and I'd turn the phone on and I'm like, okay, this is this little piece. And I'd start putting together songs. So usually it was the music first and then you'd start f- figuring out the words for it. Usually it was, yeah, little, yeah. Usually it was a little piece of uh, maybe a little chord progression. And uh, I would start like that. And sometimes, sometimes words would come initially, but mostly it mostly it'd be some music, uh, uh, before beforehand so when your first album was if my ancestors could see me now which was 1988 was that a similar kind of process or where were you when you did that well that that was actually i was living for the most part making that record i had i, I had been playing with bonnie ray prior to to just when i started developing those songs i had been playing with i had played with bonnie but i think from like 1984 to 87 somewhere around there and that was my, uh, I was, that's I, 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 one of my favorite gigs I ever did accompanying someone and uh, being a part of a group was, was backing up Bonnie Ray. man. I love that lady. And um, I started developing. So I had a, I had a recording studio with some friends of mine in Los Angeles. That's where I was living. And we had a little place with like a 16 track, some kind of Fostex, a Fostex 16 track recorder, and a couple of keyboards and whatnot, some drums. And, and I started writing in there and I would just record as I went along. And I wrote, I wrote pretty much every song on the ancestors record in that room. And there was maybe a demo of some kind of every song on that record. And, uh, it was pretty cool because there were times when I was like, really, I had, I had an apartment. I had apartments during those times, but there were, there was spurts, when I was in that room, when I really didn't, maybe I was in between places. <laughs> oh, I just chose to be sleeping in, in that studio a lot of times, I believe. And we were doing stuff in the, it was the 80s. We were doing in little, little enhancement exper- experimentations with, with drugs and stuff back then. So, I, you know, I would stay up late a lot, you know, late hours of the night. And uh, I had fun. I had fun developing the music for that record. What did you learn, by the way, from, you know, seeing Bonnie Raitt up close for all those years? And she's on your new record, too. She is on that. She's on the song Hey All Together now. It's funny because I just I recently got to play with her again a couple years ago. She called me up and she was like, you know, transitioning with her band and stuff. And she called me to come and play with her for a little while. I did a couple of tours with her. Um, which was amazing. Um, you know what? She, she was just this great, um, musician, man. Uh, and a, a lady that just, Oh my God, she's so loving and so caring. And I always, I always saw in her this, this great, um, concern for humanity and, and the world around us. And she was always concerned with the environment. I was hearing stuff about that, about that from her back in the days. They would do these festivals, these no 
the no nukes. Remember the no nukes movement back in the day? Sure. They would do all yeah. these benefits. She was a big part of all of that. And she was always doing something for a cause, man. I, I mean, she loved playing the music and all the blues musicians that she knew that hadn't gotten their just due. She would do what she could to help them. And she made sure, I mean, I think there was a, the Rhythm and Blues or the Blues Foundation. She had a big part in setting things like that up for for, for families or, or musicians who, who deserve to make money and didn't make money. She did a lot for people that that couldn't uh, help themselves or, or weren't uh, in the position to, to get their just due. She was a, a champion for uh, all the things of that nature. And I, I admire her for that and, and let alone her music and her singing. The fact that I got to be on stage and listen to her sing for many yeah. nights, man, that is, that is probably, uh, I, I would cherish that. Would she say, I want you to play this part or would she say, play what you think is right for the song? She was, there were, there were times when she was specific. <laughs> there were times that she would, she had in her mind what she wanted you to play. But then there were other times where she would maybe give me a, a, a nudge in a certain direction, but let me go and be, who I, you know, do do Ivan, do do what Ivan would do there. There were times when she would do that, but there were lots of times when she was very specific in what she wanted to hear. And sometime in there, you worked on the Rolling Stones album, Dirty Work, which is sort of yeah. notorious like album for when they weren't getting along. I mean, was it, was yeah. it, were they not getting along when you were in there? Was it like, you that? know, I, well, I swear, I, I didn't see that the, the personal relationships between those guys like that. I just saw they would go in the studio and there were nights when just Keith would be Keith and Ronnie would go in the studio. They were not, I went in the stu- to the studio with just Ronnie one night or two nights. And then there was maybe a couple times where all of them were in there. Now I didn't see them, any real, real friction, but I knew that, you know, behind the scenes, there was some stuff going on and I later found out, but I got to tell you, you mentioned that album. That's my favorite credit of all time playing on. I played on a lot of records. I played bass on a song on a song called hold back on dirty work. That's my favorite credit ever. Yeah, I saw that you played bass on that record, and I was wondering, Uh, that was before Bill Wyman had left. You know, how did you end up playing bass? He was still in the band. Matter of fact, that song is myself and Ronnie Wood playing bass. Ronnie, I think they spliced the two bass parts. Ronnie's playing the first verse, first chorus, second verse. I think I come in around the second or third chorus, and then I'm in. I'm in from there out. So it's two bass parts on that song, Ronnie Wood and, and myself. I also got a keyboard credit on that record. I didn't play keyboards on that record at all. <laughs> I only played, I didn't. I only played bass on that song, on that one song, and I sang backup vocals on a few things. Yeah. How did that How did that all happen? Were you playing bass on that and just being brought in for that record? No, I was, I was not known as a bass player at all. What happened with that particular session and how I, I was, I had been, I had been, I had just finished the tour with Bonnie Raitt and we had just finished up in the in the east in the east coast uh, area, and we were in New York, and everybody was going home or whatever. Finished the tour was over, and I stayed in New York and hung around New York for a minute, and I ended up going to the uh, recording studio where I was told the Rolling Stones are recording. You should come by, and I went by the studio and I hung out one night, and all those guys were there. And I ended up singing, singing uh, backup vocals on something with those guys. And then during this was during about a five or six day period. I was going to the studio every day when they were recording. And one night, one night I went to visit Ron Wood had a um, his son. His I remember, I remember this specifically. Ron Wood's son Tyrone had a birthday party, and I went over to Ron's house. And Ronnie met me at the door and we went straight to his basement where he had a recording studio and Keith was downstairs in the basement and me, Ronnie and Keith were hanging down in the basement playing. They both had guitars. I picked up a bass and we were playing and we were just playing whatever, just grooving and whatnot. 
And at some point, I remember maybe the mention of Keith or maybe Ryan and G, man, we should maybe we should let Ivan try to play a bass part on that one song. And I kind of didn't really pay no mind to it, except that later that night, we ended up in the recording studio where they were doing their sessions. And we had sung a song. I think the song, there was a song called Fight. I want to get in a fight. Oh, yeah. no. Okay. So all, we all sang on that. And everybody was standing in a, in a circle. Myself, Steve Jordan, Charlie Drayton, Ron, Keith, Mick, and I believe Don Covey. Wow. And if I'm not mistaken, there was one more person that might have been there. Patty. Scalfer. I'm, I'm pretty sure her name, but yeah. Right. I, I never can pronounce what her last name is, but we were all singing this one song and we sang that background apart on it. And then they put up this other song and then like, Keith looks over to me and says, Hey man, you want to go try to put a bass on this song? I'm like, well, sure. <laughs> Kidding me? Yeah, I'll try. And I went and got put on the bass and I played the, played the track. I played and they were in the, they were in the control room and the, the song was gone and it had a little thing. And I could see them kind of, you know, moving around in the, in the, in the control room. It was amazing. I was so thrilled and I played the bass and in the session, we left the studio kind of early that morning. It was daylight by the time we left out of there. And I was like on cloud nine. I had just played bass on a stone song in the studio. I was like, Oh my God. Uh, it was amazing. Man. It was absolute. Uh, That's yeah. great. Where was Bill Wyman? He was not at those sessions. I believe he had played on whatever he had played on, on that record. And I think they, they were kind of, I guess, patching up the rest of the record. Most of the basic tracks were all recorded. For the most part, Bill, like uh, Charlie Watts' drum tracks were mostly all done. And they were just adding stuff and adding vocals and adding a little guitar thing here and there. And 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 so that's where that's the stage of the recording process with that that they were in at the time. Nice. So yeah. Yeah. And then you and then you went back and you were on Voodoo Lounge later, right? That was a yeah, around 1994, 90 somewhere around there. But the funny thing was before the in between all that. Keith decided right. to start a solo project. Right. I should have asked about that Keith first. Rich no, Keith Richardson, the expensive wine. So this is after this is uh, later on around the time I was working on my ancestors record. I got a call that Keith was maybe going to put together a group to do some, uh, a solo recording. And I went to New York and, um, myself, Keith, Waddy Wattel, Steve Jordan and Charlie Drayton were in a room together playing. For like a week, we were in there playing, running around, having a blast, having a an absolute blast every night playing music. And man, that was some fun times. And then that we ended up recording his first record, um, Talk is Cheap. And now that record, I actually played on maybe five or six songs on that record. And they used, they went and did some other stuff. I think Bernie Worrell played on some of that record from Bernie Worrell from uh, Parliament Funkadelic. Right. Funk, Bernie played on some of that record as did Boosie Collins, Maceo. Yeah. Buckwheat Zydeco was on there. I mean, they had a lot of folks on that record, but I, that was my first and the first Keith solo record talk is cheap. And then he went, we went on to do another record and a lot of touring. And I ended up playing on Voodoo Lounge around 94. Yeah. 1994. And that was an amazing experience. The only, I just got to mention this is, is that, during the time of Voodoo Lounge, man, I, I was kind of, I was kind of spiraling. My, um, my abuse of substances and alcohol and stuff like that was really starting to take a toll on me during that time. And, and around ninety four, ninety five, ninety, I, I stopped. I and I changed my in nineteen ninety eight. I stopped drinking and doing drugs. So I'm just going to tell you that. So around the time of right. Voodoo Lounge, I would have much, I would have, I wish I would have been a little bit more coherent <laughs> for those sessions. I was there and I was on, I played keyboards on some stuff. I sang backups on a lot of stuff. Um, you could actually hear me. I could hear myself on this one song on Love is Strong. Love is Strong and you're, you're so sweet. Right. You can hear a little thick voice in the bottom. That's me. <laughs> it's 
smoke-filled voice was in there. You can hear me pretty strong. Strong, and you're so sweet. And soon, baby, we got to meet. That was an amazing time I had playing on that stuff. And like I said, I was my, my, I was, my life was spiraling out of control at the time. Uh, you know, my my substance abuse and whatnot. I was, uh, you know, I wasn't I wasn't having a a good go of it with that stuff. And so in in 1998, um, yeah, I finally threw in the towel with that part of my life. So for 25 years, you've been recovered. Yeah, this, sober, this, year, all that. this year, this year will be 25 years. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Still, well, still studying it. What was it? What was <laughs> I'm it? still practicing. <laughs> what got you to that point where you were like, okay, I need to actually do something and stick with it. Well, what happened was the music became less important to me. The music became less important than getting high and stuff. Getting high and drinking became more important than everything else. And it wasn't making me feel good anymore as well. You know what I'm saying? This is right. this is taking over my life. It's not even, it's not even making me feel good anymore. It's not doing anything. Whatever it did for me in the past, I had some fun times and there was, there was times early on where it made me comfortable in my skin a little bit more and made me more adaptable to social situations and stuff like that, the drinking and the, and the partying. And it made me feel a little bit more. It took the edge off, you know, for a lot of years. But when that, that stopped working and then I was just doing it, I don't, you know, to, I don't know, to try to maintain some level of some kind of insanity that that I was experiencing and then it wasn't working anymore. And then the music just got less important to me. And by the time I actually stopped, like I had after the Voodoo Lounge uh, thing uh, record, I ended up I was kind of I was living. I had I had moved around. I had moved around from from like I started out in New Orleans. I moved to Los Angeles. I moved to New York. I moved back to New Orleans. I moved back to Los Angeles. That's when I got I got sober in in, in L.A. in '98. I had been doing from, from about ninety ninety six to ninety eight or so. I was playing with this band called Spin Doctors. They had called right. me to 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 help them out. They wanted to add a keyboard to their group, and I was playing with them. And I was pretty much I, I really owe a debt of gratitude to those guys because I was pretty much at my bottom, man. I was at the bottom of the pit with my lifestyle and where I had gone and this dark place I was in. Um, I mean, there were some things in, in my life that I should have been really grateful for. I had a, I had a beautiful daughter that, um, that uh, she, she, I had a daughter that was born in 1990. Her name's Ivy. And she was, a, a, a you know, she's an, an, still an amazing, uh, young lady to this point, you know, but at that time I should have been reveling in things like that. Like I've learned now to revel in my little man, Isaiah, I should have been doing that then. And I, I wasn't, I was, and so I figured it was time. It was time to, to make a change, man. I was like, you know what? I have nothing against uh, people who do what they do and, and, you know, uh, how, whatever you might want to uh, party or whatever, drinking and doing, doing, doing the stuff they do nowadays. But um, for me, for me personally, it just it just didn't work anymore. And I was spending more time chasing that illusion than I was at honing my music, my musical life. And it was music was second, third. It wasn't even secondary. It was like the back burner for me. And I was lucky enough that I had I still had I had natural God given talent that I was still able to play. And people would still maybe call me to play for them and, 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 and record for them. But I was really horrible. I was like, you know, it wasn't good. It wasn't very good. So I, I was fortunate that I was able to nip that in the bud and, and throw in the towel and join the winning side. And <laughs> I'm, I'm still on that winning side now, you know? Did you, were you able to sort of rediscover your joy of, you know, music and appreciate it more when you've been through oh, that? Abs absolutely. So when, and that's, that, that puts me on this thing when I hear people, when I hear, I know I got musician friends who think, who think that when they get high, they play better and shit like that. 
You know, when getting getting high and drinking and stuff, it did take the edge off. And there's a nervousness that sometimes, you know what? I love that feeling nervous, that feeling a little bit nervous when you're going to play, especially if it's a certain, like if I'm doing a piano set and it's very intimate and I'm kind of exposed, I get very nervous doing that. And I have, I, I don't have the luxury of taking a drink to take the edge off or anything like that. I just got to go and play and be myself and um, show myself to, to, to the audience and to, to the world. And there's a beauty in that that I've found. And music sounds so good when you have a clear head and what you're hearing and your contribution is so delicate and so meaningful. You know, I have nothing that's in between me and the music. And it's a beautiful thing, man. It's it's a, it's definitely been a gift, and it's been a gift to learn to appreciate it even more and more as days and years have gone by. happiest with music is it when you're playing live is it when you're like jamming with dumpster funk is it when you're actually in the studio hearing a song come together is it when you're writing something and you realize you have a song you know what there's there's a there's a piece of that of that happiness that happens in all of those different formats at one time or another um yeah it, it happens in all of those in all of those formats Playing live, you love it. And you have moments where you know you, where you're connecting with an audience and you feel something and you feel it and you say, ah, oh, this is good, you know, and you get that feeling in your heart and your soul. And then, you know, playing with Dunkster Funk is pretty amazing because you're playing with these musicians that you love to listen to them play while you're playing. So I end up mm -hmm. playing some really cool stuff because I'm listening to what they're playing and then I'm playing something like, oh, wow, that is funky and nice and they got some space and oh you know so you get those those moments and then when you're making up something in the studio you have moments where you feel some magical thing happen where you're like something accidental that you didn't absolutely plan and you're like oh wow listen to this how did this have? just like the, the song hey all together how that came about and how i got my dad bonnie ray and michael mcdonald to sing on that and when I when I had their all of their parts, we didn't do it in the same room, and the, the pandemic was going on as well around the time we recorded a lot of this stuff. So you know, I, uh, they would record in their respective studios where they lived and send me the files, and then I would sit and listen and say, "Okay, this is this is great. Let me see what I can use, what I what, what's not going to be used, and where it's going to go." And when you that magic happens in the studio and you hear these voices and they sound like they were singing all together. And and I my dad, I had I was missing something from my dad. I had um I needed him to sing a few things because some of his his recordings, some of it, it just it didn't trans it didn't transfer right or something like that. And so I didn't have what I absolutely needed and I I called him up and I said, look, man, I need you to go back in. He had he has his engineer guy. His name's Peter. He went to his house. He would go to his house. And my dad was not letting a lot of people in his house at the time, right? This is just fucking. So anyway, he said, look, this guy's going to come over there, Dad. He's going to come over there and he's going to record you. And all I need you to do, I need you to do a couple of just Aaron Neville yodels. You don't have to say any words. Just go, <laughs> woo, woo, some of those. Give me about three, four of those. Give me five. Give me five of those Aaron Neville classic sounding things. That's all I need. And that's what he did. And that's and that's what's on this song. And when he comes in, you hear him. Oh my God! And you hear Bonnie and Michael singing this bridge part of that song. It's so beautiful. And when I, you know, when I was listening, putting this stuff together, and it was all coming together, it was like, wow. So that's one of those kind of moments that you have where it's like you get show bumps, and it's like, oh, this is happening. This yeah, is, and I can't song, wait for people to hear this. And the song's called Hey All Together, so it's pretty fitting yeah. that that's what it's yeah, called. Like. Yeah. yeah. How are you feeling have, with having a new album coming out for the first time in 19 years? Is that, like, exciting? Is it nerve-wracking? Is it all of the above? It's all of the above. <laughs> you know, I mean, 
It's very exciting. It's more exciting than anything else. But there is also a little bit of anticipation and hoping and hoping that people hear it. You know, you're hoping that, that people get to hear it and people dig it, you know. And there's a human side of an artist, you know, where you, you know, you like you, you want people to, to like with you, your expression and, and your your um your creative uh, output. You know, you want people to hear this and say, okay, that's some cool stuff, you know. And you're and you're touring behind it because I think you're going to be in Chicago pretty soon. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing a, it's a small little run, a few few dates. I, I had I got a, I think with with when engineered that little run was. I got some friends of mine by uh, this band called Soul Asylum. I played I played MTV Unplugged with them back in 1993, I believe. Mm. I played piano with them on MTV Unplugged, uh, Soul Asylum, and they're out, they're out of Minneapolis. And so they're doing a 30 year retrospective gig based on their 30 year anniversary 30 year anniversary of MTV Man. Unplugged. So I'm going to go and play with them. And I'm going to do an opening set, an Ivan and Friends opening set. So that just kind of helped me to do, create a little three, four day uh, run, which I'm going to go to Nashville on the day of the record release, which is the 21st of uh, April. There'll be a couple of guys that played on the record that also play in Dumpster Funk, Tony Hall on bass and Devin Trusclaw on drums. And I got a guy named Ari, Ari Title on guitar. He's a, he's a guy, I think I was, I was from Detroit and he moved to new Orleans some years ago and he's a great young guitar player. And, uh, that's, that's gonna, that rounds out. Uh, it's just a, a smaller version of what I, what I might do at some point to present this music, but it's, uh, we're going, it's going to be pretty good. I think there's so many like great, colorful musicians who, you know, part of like the new Orleans scene like james booker you were mentioning and i saw some story about him like imitating a cop which was funny um oh, wait, 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 you... <laughs> there was like an old interview with you and you were talking about how he was uh he was he was he was impersonating a cop and like busting your friends for like they were they thought they were getting busted by a real cop for smoking pot yeah was, yeah, he was, yeah he was just giving them he, he was just he was giving them a hard time his, his brother-in-law his brother-in-law was it was a police officer and he, uh, I saw him one day with the police uniform on with the hat and the whole nine yards. And I told my mama and hey mama, my mom went to, went to high school with Booker and my dad went to grade school with Booker. So they knew him very well. And they, he was a hoot. He was a, he was a funny character, like amazing piano player, but he, I had some hard laughs, some real belly laughs on the count of Booker. You know, and he, I said, mom, he, I saw Booker with a police suit on. What the, what's that about? And she says, Booker's uh, sister's husband was, was a police officer. He must have taken that man's uniform and just wore it. We don't know why, but that's what he did. And that's, that's what happened in the story. We were in this club. We, my band, our, whatever the group was at the time, I think we had a band called the Uptown All-Stars. We were in the back, standing in the back of the club. We were smoking pot. And we see Booker walk into the club in the front door and he has his police uniform on. And he had a bit, by this time he had, he had a Billy club, a Billy club and all this stuff. And our friend, Nick, Nick Daniels, who plays bass in, in, in dumpster folk was standing by the bar and we saw Booker talking to Nick and we saw Nick pull out his wop. Like he's asking Nick <laughs> for ID and shit. We're like, oh my God, Nick doesn't know that. He doesn't know. He knows of Booker, and but he he had, he had never really met Booker. Or he didn't recognize him or something. Yeah, the and context so he came of over, like having a cop doesn't. You don't think, oh, that's James Booker. Yeah, he came over there by us, man. Y'all better put that weed away, man. There's a cop over there, man. He's harassing me. I'm like, man, that's not a cop. That's Booker. <laughs> And we were we were laughing, we were laughing so hard. But he ended up getting arrested later on for impersonating an officer. <laughs> he got a gun, he got a, a starter pistol, and he pulled that out somewhere and shot a shot in the air, the starter pistol, and then he got arrested for impersonating an officer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the starter pistol's gonna maybe put it over the edge on the phone. That's good. I put it over, I put him over the top, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, oh, no, yeah, I, yeah, I discovered James Booker the last few years. I'm like, man, this guy's amazing. I just, I didn't know him until just like, again, just like, I think it was the pandemic made me sort of go deeper into a lot of stuff that I didn't know as well. And he was one of them. And I was like, oh, this guy's great. 
So, all right, I'm going to give you one last question. What is it? What is it that makes New Orleans music, New Orleans music? And how? What is like the tell for you that someone is doing it right or not doing it right? From New Orleans, New Orleans music. I mean, I, there's, a, there's a distinct sound. Like you listen to something. There's, and you're a, like, feel, there's that's, a feel. That's it. That's New Orleans. There's music a rhythmic right feel, a rhythmic feel that I would know in, immediately. And maybe it starts, it's mostly, I mean, I think it starts in the drum, in the drum area. That's kind of the most obvious instrument that you could tell if someone's from New Orleans or not. And, you know, there's a distinct beat. It's like, it's like a mixture of some, they got some Caribbean thing going on and some other, I don't know whether it sounds like somebody's drunk of, I don't it's got a thing. It's an ism. It's an ism to it. And that ism, I the, think ism is the right word. That is yeah. just so kind of wobbly, slanky, slanky wobbly and groove. wobbly and, Im, and imperfect. And there's a, you know, it's got a, a, a skip to it. That's that you can't help, but it makes make your body move. And you know it. You know it's New Orleans when you hear that. You're like, okay, this cast from New Orleans. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you try to play it exactly, you're probably not getting it right. It's like you got to have that like wobble in it, I think. Yeah. It's got a little, got a little if, a little, uh, it's a little slankiness to it. All right. Thank you so much, Ivan Neville. It's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, listening to you. And um, good luck with the, you know going out again with this new music and and have fun with it. Thank you very much, man. Yeah. Thank you. Right, cool. Great talking, good to, talking you. to you, man. That's it for episode 82 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Ivan Neville for sharing such great stories about himself, his family, and the great New Orleans music they have produced. His new album, Touch My Soul, is out now on vinyl, CD, and digital platforms. He is on Instagram and Twitter, at Ivan Neville. He's in the midst of a run of concerts in New Orleans, including a May 4th show at the Toulouse Theater, with upcoming dates in Asheville, North Carolina, Atlanta, Charleston, South Carolina, and on June 13th, New York's Sony Hall. Dumpsta Funk just played the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival and has a couple shows at Tipitina's on Sunday, May 7th. Go to dumpstafunk.com, that's D-U-M-P-S-T-A-P-H-U-N-K, for more information about the band and upcoming tour dates. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who does all the dirty work around here. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also, visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming episodes and events. Please share, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop Conversation. Thanks.